0: is Dr. Joanna Williamson. Welcome to the window.
1: How are you doing today, Dr. Joe?
0: I, um, my windows blurred this morning. My windows blurred this morning in part from lack of sleep, a restless sleep. We had planned to talk about, and we'll still talk about on our show today, the police. We've been very honored to have as our guests over the past few weeks experts who have talked us through the george floyd trial we've had judge laurel Beatty blunt we've had local criminal defense attorney fred benton to educate us on what we were seeing and we had anticipated that this saturday we would be talking about the outcome of the george floyd trial which we will and we had anticipated that we would be talking about what the verdict, either way it went, meant for us. And we'll start, still talk about that. But here in Central Ohio, the, the, the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict seems like it was long in the past because we've
1: had so much that's happened since then. I feel you. I am looking through my window and I'm reflecting on growing up in Evansville, Indiana We were the first black family in the neighborhood, and my father was the chauffeur of the wealthiest man, wealthiest white man in town, and his name was Mead Johnson. He created Pablum and MetroCal. He was a forerunner in the nutritional liquid beverages, and my father drove him around wherever he wanted to go, integrated places as the chauffeur, and he taught us, my brother and I, to treat people the way we want to be treated. The golden rule was not non-negotiable. And I think about him, today's his birthday.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think about him and how he would have been able to process what we have seen because if you are a member of the esteemed baby boom generation, this is the worst we've seen. When you look over the, the chapters of our lives, this is the worst we've seen, I think. And that's an opinion, I, I can't prove it, but Dr. Joe, I, I really think that uh, we're coming to a, a crossroads.
0: For those of you who might not be aware of what we're referring to when we talk about the events in Columbus, Ohio this week, and it, it's not just in Columbus, it's made the national news. We're talking about a young lady whose, whose name I even hate to say, because if there's anyone who deserves to rest in peace, it would be this young lady who appears not to have had much throughout her life. But her name is Makia Bryant. And so if I reflect through her eyes and, and and no one will know what she was thinking or feeling because she is dead. She was killed this week. She was killed by, I believe, four shots to the chest. If you reflect through her eyes, though, it appears to me, and again, I'm adding to the buzz out in the environment right now because I know nothing more than anyone else who's been reading the media and reading social media and hearing what someone said to someone else. But it just appears to me that if you looked at life through her 16-year-old eyes, first she was a child. She's only been on the planet for 16 years. That's not a long time. If you look through her eyes, everything in our system that was supposed to be there to protect her, to nurture her, just seems to me to
1: have failed. And to have two parents is such a blessing, a mom and a dad, and to have none right there on the spot with you to give those kind of lessons that my father and mother gave me, it's a tragedy. In
0: a community, in a neighborhood, that when I was growing up, when I was growing up, if there was a street fight, it would have taken one grandma to come out on the front porch in her house robe and her bedroom slippers, and say, y'all stop, and that would have broken it up. But if you look through her eyes, there was who there to protect her? Was there family there? Was there a neighborhood there? And then the ultimate, as you said, when we were raised, we thought if everything else failed us, if nothing else made us feel safe, call the police. But in Columbus, Ohio, if the statistics I'm reading are accurate, Columbus ranks second only to Chicago in terms of the number of black youth that have been killed by police since 2016 in the past five years. And so if you look at the world through her now stilled eyes, I can't imagine what she saw that ended up with her feeling as though she had to pick up something to protect her world. And so the good news is always here on the window is that Dr. I and I do reflect, but what we feel really benefits our audience is not just our opinions, but rather hearing from the experts. And so we are so honored to have two of the, I I can't think of two better people to have here with us today as we come full circle now to talking about the police, the, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the law enforcement uh, system in our society, and especially as it relates to African Americans. So we do have two guests. I, I will tell you quickly who they are, and then we're gonna spend some time talking to each one of them and then hearing from them together. Neither one of them are shy about telling us what's going on in the world and in their minds. So we have a noted civil rights historian to talk to us about how we got to this place as it relates to relationships between the African American community in particular and law enforcement. And so that will be the past that will bring us to the present. And then we're going to talk about the future. We have the, the head of the new uh, Civilian Police Review Board in Columbus. And we're so honored to have Dr. W. Marvin Delaney and Janet Jackson here with us. So we will start with you, Dr. Delaney, calling in from Texas. Both of them are retired, by the way. And so I can tell you what they are not role models of. In their stellar careers, they have done a lot of things right, but neither one of them knows how to retire. So, so maybe we'll have a show on retirement in the future. But Dr. W. Marvin Delaney is an Ohio native. He's, he was born in Alliance. He's a magna cum laude grad of our local HBCU, Central State University, with a degree in history. He attended The Ohio State University got his master's degree and his doctorate in American and African-American history. He went on to have a very stellar career in academia and is presumably retired now. He actually is retired from the University of Texas, Arlington. He's an associate professor emeritus, and along the way in his career, he did other very noteworthy things like serve as executive director of the Avery Research Center in Charleston, South Carolina, which is a wonderful place to see He's currently serving as deputy director and chief operations officer of the African American Museum in Dallas, Texas, and he has spent, again, his entire career talking about civil rights, but in particular, he has knowledge about police and African American police. So, Dr. Delaney, thank you, and welcome to the show.
3: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Joanna. I appreciate the introduction.
0: I am I am looking at a book that Dr. Delaney wrote called Black Police in America. And this book as I understand it was actually his dissertation and as many of us intend to do but most of us don't do he went ahead and turned his dissertation into a book and and it, it talks about African American history as it relates to American policing and I am Um, particularly moved by the very first sentence in this book. It says, African Americans in the U.S. have always, always been policed. African Americans in the U.S. have always been policed. And it goes on to say that most Africans arrived on American shores as captives, as we know, in the Atlantic slave trade, and the regulation of their behavior and the suppression of potential rebellions always preoccupied their captors. Dr. Delaney, fast forward to now, are we still viewed as a people who need to be policed and controlled versus served and protect? Help me with that, please
3: yes uh, very much so uh, when you look at some of the things that have happened over the past well, let's say 20 years in terms of the fleece and how they have sort of shot first and asked questions later uh, we can indeed tie all of this back to those um, slave patrols that emerged specifically in the southern colonies that developed into the fleece in the southern states and then of course also influenced the development of the police in, in northern states. And then after the Civil War, and I'm sorry, I'm taking you so back, far back in history, then after the Civil War, the police in particular uh, became sort of the force to regulate African American behavior, to enforce segregation, to you know basically control the African American community. And they used some of the same tactics of the same patrol. The slave patrol had this awesome power, as I noted in the book, that is, they could maim, whip, beat, and kill African Americans who were enslaved and who were in the wrong place, um, who were rebellious, uh, who had sort of contraband things in their cabins. In fact, they could literally toss their cabins up. As someone who had had his apartment tossed when I was in uh, college, You know, I understand what what all that means. And so one of the things I noticed is that African Americans didn't have any Fourth Amendment rights. That basically there was no warrants necessary. uh, The slave patrol and even the police today in some instances can literally go and come in your place and toss it and walk away without, you know, any type of, um, how can I say, punishment for, for doing that. So, yeah, what we're seeing today is sort of the residue of the slave patrol of this belief that the police have almost an ultimate authority, an unregulated authority over African Americans in particular, and the Supreme Court. I I just was reading an article earlier today about how the Supreme Court has sort of supported the police in carrying out this control, this regulation of African American behavior by allowing them to get to search a car, to do stop and frisk, to, to literally do anything that they think, you know, on the basis of so-called suspicion, uh, in terms of policing African Americans. But there's this belief, and you, and, and you know it like I do, that African Americans are prone to criminality, and if they're not committing a crime today, eventually they will. And so the police are, have sort of been trained, the focus on African-American men and, and women in and, and terms of trying to prevent crime, uh, specifically to, to prevent the, uh, crime of, uh, against whites by African-Americans. And let me stop there.
1: Dr. Delaney, this is um, Dr. I. I'm partnering with Dr. Joan on this radio show. And it sounds like to me that the FOP started way back when. Is that correct?
3: yes it started way back when uh in the the 17th century of the 1600s when in fact the southern colonies virginia south carolina maryland georgia passed what was called the slave codes which basically again enabled the slave patrol to abuse african-americans uh who were enslaved and in, in, you know um, protect, to protect the white population from this large enslaved African-American population. And again, it, it regulated that, you know, it had things such as no more than three African-Americans are, as, as it was said, was said then, no more than three slaves could congregate. Um, enslaved people could have not have certain contraband, which, of course, would be weapons of rights. Of uh, tobacco, because in many cases African Americans would take the rice and and the tobacco that they were growing and, and sell it in order to make money. So uh, all these little regulations, you know, were being enforced then by the the slave patrol. And you know, I I can remember as I tied that to the to the present. You know, when, when some of my some of my friends and I would stand on the corner in our little my little hometown. The police would come by and say, move on. Uh, y'all should be uh, loitering here, and if you don't move, we're going to arrest you. So it's just some of the same things then that were happening in the 17th, and 18th, and, of course, the 19th century that carried over into the 20th century in terms of how the police felt that they needed to, uh, uh, to do in terms of regulating behavior and the movement of, of African Americans.
0: Your experiences have taken you around the country. And if I look at your 15 or so page curriculum vita of your accomplishments and your publications, I see work that you have done specifically related to police issues around the country. So for example, you've served on the board of Mothers Against Police Brutality in Dallas. You do an Mm -hmm. annual lecture on police in the black community For your University of Texas Arlington colleagues police cohort class in Fort Worth, you've done Mm -hmm. workshops for the police departments in Dallas, Fort Worth, Phoenix, Chicago, Charleston, New York City, Providence, Rhode Island, Arlington, Texas. You've done workshops and keynote addresses for the annual meetings of the National Black Police Association and the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Are you seeing the same thing around the country and are you seeing any progress in all these years?
3: I'd like to say that you know when I first started this work, I, I, I was I was seeing some changes uh, take place. You you note that my book is about the experience of African Americans in law enforcement, and I was sort of um, motivated to do the work of studying the black experience in law enforcement, primarily because at the time, uh, black police officers were creating black police associations such as the, the Guardians. Uh, the Shield Club in Cleveland and so on, to deal with racism and policing. Plus, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, the National Black Police Association, were taking stands against police brutality, uh, basically challenging their colleagues uh, to stop abusing black citizens. And so they indeed were making progress. Uh, they were standing up and saying that as black men and women in law enforcement, we are going to tell our colleagues that police brutality is against the law, and, and we're going to stop it uh, in, in any way that we can. Uh, what has happened, though, again, I was so, I'm going to say, ho- hopeful in the 70s and 80s that uh, black police officers would be the difference between, you know, the, the police carrying out these same old tactics of the slave patrol and ending them. That, um you know uh, as I said a copal thinking that okay this 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 can stop we can finally have police that behave properly against uh, African-American citizens and black police officers can sort of be like the the catalyst for for change in policing in this country but it, what what we've seen what we have seen that in the, spite of some black police officers standing up, and in fact having black police chiefs in Philadelphia, Cleveland, New York City, St. Louis, Los Angeles, San Francisco, nothing really has changed that much, uh, because some of them have sort of retreated from taking a stand against police, police brutality. I did a presentation for the Guardians in New York about five years ago, and I posed a question to them about what happened. In the '60s and '70s, y'all were in the forefront uh, for for promoting police reform, for ending police brutality, for integrating the police. Now it seems like y'all just sort of falling in in line with the other officers in terms of just tolerating a a few bad apples, as they called it. And of course, their response to me, and they got indeed, they were sort of angry that I would ask them that question because I basically was calling them cowards. They they said, "Well, you you don't have to do this job." You don't know what it's like you know, on the streets. You don't know that our lives are in danger. You don't know that uh, we sacrifice ourselves even by criticizing one off, one uh, fellow officer on the force in terms of police brutality and some of the racist things that was going on. So one of them said to me, what we try to do, though, is pull some of them aside and talk to them about their tactics. But obviously we can't make the institutional change. By that approach so uh, again uh, as i said i was hopeful um felt, felt good about what was happening in policing in the 70s and 80s with black officers were standing up and taking stands against police brutality but as i said uh in the 21st century all that seems to have changed that indeed the police are just basically unrained um unchallenged in, in terms of their behavior
0: you talked about institutional and we hear systemic change that's needed, and you had a four point plan that you shared with me earlier. So we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with civil rights historian Dr. W. Marvin Delaney and the head of the new Civilian Police Review Board in Columbus, Ohio, Janet Jackson. We'll come back after a quick break on the window. we're back on the window thank you so much for joining us we're talking this week about the police and just to be sure we're clear we are not police bashing we believe that law enforcement acting as a part of our society as a part of our community i believe is vital to our society however We are focused today on the past, the present, and the future of law enforcement relationships with the African-American community, which we can all, at least in this room, agree is in need of systemic change. We are honored to have with us today our guest, Dr. W. Marvin Delaney, civil rights historian who's a Columbus, a Central Ohio native who's talking to us from Texas today, given that he has just retired as a professor who spent his career looking at issues like what's going on with the law enforcement community and the African-American community. He's just explained to us that policing of our community started back with the slave trade, and there has been some slow progress perhaps made, but he's explaining the reasons to us why that hasn't been more accelerated, And he shared with me several months ago, I actually sent him a message right around the time of the George Floyd killing to ask him what in the world was going on and what he would suggest. And so he shared with me, based on his considerable experience around the country, dealing with not only researching the topic, but actually talking to people and to police officers in the community. Here are the four points he told me he believed were needed to curtail police violence in our community the first in qualified immunity for police officers second in police brutality cases assign outside prosecutors third reduce the influence of police unions and fourth, create a federal database of problem officers to keep the so-called bad apples from being hired by other police agencies. He cites Tamir Rice in Cleveland, who's one of many names we could cite here today. Tamir Rice was a child as well. He was playing with a gun, and a police officer stepped outside of his vehicle and shot him, very similar to what happened here in Columbus, Ohio when a young lady was shot four times by a police officer who had been on the scene for less than 15 seconds. A play gun. A play gun, Tamir Rice, I might add. Thank you very much, a play gun. The voice you heard correcting me is our second guest, and she has a long history of correcting people in her roles as a municipal court judge in franklin county and also as columbus city attorney and she's recently been named head of the columbus civilian police review board which perhaps is one of the four points outlined by dr delaney but janet jackson thank you as well for being here with us in studio today start by telling us what is this police review board that you'll be heading
2: Less well, a complicated question there's not there's not a simple answer and i want to go back before i get to the civilian review board uh, to remind your listeners that i chaired the uh, safety advisory commission for the city of columbus Uh, we met and worked from march of 2018 until the end of 2019 and presented mayor genther with 80 recommendations on how to improve the uh, police department. Uh, When the mayor asked me to chair the advisory commission, it was very clear we were not to investigate the police. It was our responsibility to review everything about them from how they recruit, um, how they're hired, their training, absolutely everything about them and to make recommendations on how to improve uh, the department. So one of our recommendations was in fact to create a civilian review board. And although we didn't call it the office of the inspector general, we essentially called for the creation of a civilian investigatory unit that has now become the inspector general. Um, The mayor, and the members of city council decided that the best thing to do was to put that recommendation um, to the voters to the citizens of columbus and so last uh november um both items were on the uh, were on the ballot and passed by 74 percent. so from my perspective that's an overwhelming um, support of the community that this is something that is is needed. And i would also point out that Columbus is one of the few major cities that didn't have a Civilian Review Board. Uh, So after that was passed, the mayor then had a work group uh, to come up with recommendations for the Civilian Review Board. Uh, I believe they had seven or eight meetings. It It was a great representation from the community and they have, in fact, uh, they presented to the mayor 17 recommendations about the, uh, for the Civilian Review Board. Um, so at this point, uh, the mayor uh, has identified nine individuals, and those names are before City Council this coming Monday. We actually had a public hearing on last Tuesday uh, when council members um, could just basically get to know us uh, and, and our backgrounds. And so what is the Civilian Review Board? And I'm one, I like to be accurate. And so I went back to what we voted on. Um, And in terms of powers and duties, the Civilian Police Review Board shall receive, initiate, cause investigation of, and recommend resolution of complaints filed with it or initiated by the board alleging misconduct by sworn members of the Columbus Division of Police. Upon completion of an investigation, the board shall make recommendations to the Division of Police regarding resolution of the complaint and where warranted by the facts may make recommendations uh, concerning discipline. So in terms of how, and so everything at this point is almost conjecture. I mean, it's been created, we have nine members, but we haven't met, first of all, uh, we are technically still nominees. We're not actually membership. yet. Uh, the first thing we will need to do is to build the Civilian Review Board and to make sure that it is on a firm foundation as to what it is and what it is not. Um, that's the first most important thing. The second to me would be the, and we don't actually get to hire, but we will be the uh, individuals, who will take resumes and will uh, interview prospective individuals to become the Inspector General. And we have to get that right. Uh, it must be someone with investigative background, but it doesn't have to be someone you know from the police. So that person will have a staff that will actually conduct the investigations of these allegations, you know, about the police. And as I believe it will work, that person will submit findings to us that we will need to review, debate, ask for more information, whatever it takes, to come to a conclusion about what should be done.
1: I have a question. Mm -hmm. Janet and I go way back, Mm -hmm. we both had boys that Berwick School mm-hmm. um, a, few years ago, a few years ago, a few years ago, but being mothers of black sons, mm-hmm. we have a vested interest oh, yes. in the success of this effort. And these confrontations and these conflicts are never easy. They're never simple. There's always four or five or six different ways to look at it. If you have a investigation of, let's say, any one of the, the, the killings that we've had lately, even the ones here in Columbus, after, you reach your, after a conclusion is reached, let's say that there was negligence, then what?
2: Well, we make our recommendations to, um, as I believe it's either to the chief or to the safety director. They make a decision that needs to be upheld by the mayor. So, so to me, a part of it, now this is Janet, and I don't wanna bring in too many opinions. If within a department, officers begin to see real change, like in Minneapolis, like one of my own has now been convicted of second-degree murder, and he hasn't been sentenced yet, but he is, <clears throat> he is um in jail he is in solitary confinement uh he gets to come out one hour a day now i am just saying that when you begin to witness that that people are not going to tolerate that they are going to take action and there will be um consequences for your actions hopefully that will begin to, to to change um Culture within the department has to change. And, and there, I'm, I'm getting off uh, of uh, point a little bit, but the mayor's looking for a new chief. You know, he hired one from within. I am guessing that the next one will not come from within the department. And maybe people didn't catch this, but there was an article in the paper recently. There will now be three assistant chiefs. So currently you have a chief and you have deputy chiefs. They have come up from within the ranks. The three assistants, first well assistants, can come from outside, chief can hire, Um, and I think there will be greater accountability with new chief and these three individuals. so those are all all factors, you know, around it. And if and if we can do this, the civilian review board. And again, there are consequences to your actions. Uh, I think that will help, not not to muddy the water. The one thing that we don't talk about is the role that. Um, so when an officer receives discipline including being fired, which has happened, and the case goes to arbitration. Um, I think it's arbitration, it's a hearing examiner. How many times does that hearing examiner uphold the decision that has been made? Rarely, rarely is that done. I mean, the last time that an officer was fired by Mayor Genther, this is not the recent situation, but going back a little bit, the arbitrator reinstated it. Now, why was that? And He said that it was true he had used excessive force. This was the the situation with the officer kicking the gentleman who was on the ground uh, in his head, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. That he had committed, that his actions were in fact excessive, but that in essence, the punishment didn't fit the crime; that it was too much. And if you, if you just look around the state of Ohio and you look at these arbitrators, and most of us kind of don't know, the, know who they are, um, they are not upholding, to me, the, the wishes of the safety director and the mayor.
1: Is that because of the uh, FOP? Well, the power, the, the threat of, of uh, damaging the relationship? Between FOP you, you and know, the city, I
2: I can't conclude that Iris. Okay. I, I, I'm not I'm not going to say that. Uh, these individuals should be independent uh, and basing their their decisions, uh, you know, on the facts. Precedent does come does come into play, and so if some previously, if 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 officers have done again the kicking in the head, and there were no actions taken you maybe you know could see i I don't necessarily say or or think that um, the arbitrators the arbitrators are are um giving in to the FOP. I mean I, I don't know
1: okay, okay. All
0: right. so when we think about the George Floyd murder trial and I will ask this of Janet and also of Dr. Delaney who's on the line with us from Texas the fact that we had, police officers and in fact high-ranking police officers testifying against one of their own who they felt represented one of the the bad apples does that represent progress in any way
2: i think it does i think it does we have a situation uh, right now in columbus um and and the mayor has appointed several different groups this is a situation where i believe he hired a former uh, FBI agent, uh, and they're trying to identify. Um, so, so during our riots, during our protests, our protests, uh, it appears that some officers, you know, weren't wearing their badges. You couldn't identify them. So they have requested. I think it's six officers, and these officers have been told, "You're not in trouble. You know, there's no discipline." but we're seeking your help and identify the officers. And so far, they will not do it.
3: Let me chime in, uh, Dr. Joanna, that uh, one of my recommendations in terms of ending police violence uh, was also in operation in that the Attorney General, Keith Allison, did not rely on the local prosecutors in the George Floyd gate. He indeed appointed prosecutors from his office to deal with the case and so it's almost like you have to have this perfect storm of uh, again a, a video and prosecutors from outside of the city i also didn't note uh, that the even though they probably were i didn't note that the police union was involved in the case so
0: the past the present and the future of law enforcement's relationship with the black community. We'll be back after a break
1: on the window. Janet, I have a question for you, because mm-hmm. I go back to the good old days when we were at Berwick School. What is edu- What role is, does education have in in preparing and educating our people, about policing and behavior and culture um, and what the police's role were. Remember they used to come to the elementary school, Berwick School, volunteer, Um, there was no, it didn't appear to be any fear when they would come on, Mm -hmm. I I forget what they called that group. And now fast forward 20 years, we are like in different different worlds. did, did something change well, between between let's say the seventies and now that that's created this this hostility and this um, fear, other than than being where it used to be?
2: I don't know the numbers, but it is my understanding until maybe recently. Many of our officers were not from Franklin County, not even uh, contiguous counties. As a matter of fact, let me address that. We did have a residency requirement. Uh, it was Franklin County or any contiguous county. In Cleveland, if you're a police officer, you had to live in the city of Cleveland. Well, again, the folks over at the steakhouse took away the power of cities to require that. So you can now live anywhere you want to. And I, I'm not gonna remember the numbers, uh, but since all of these things started happening, Columbus has the least number of officers living in the city compared to Cleveland and Cincinnati. So you, you don't know, you know folks, right? Uh, the other thing, and I'm, I'm hoping that this will change is that many of our uh, officers were maybe a part of law enforcement in much more rural counties. Uh, They were maybe uh, volunteer. Uh, They were maybe part-time, but even if they were full-time, as I understand it, Columbus's pay and benefits are are much better. But the point is, we were having officers uh, being hired here who had never Been around black people, I mean, just not at all. They come from communities that are majority, you know, Caucasian. Um, I can't point to anything, you know, specifically. I think the program that you're talking about, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, uh, had to do around at a very early age uh, keeping our children, you know, out of drugs and everything. Mm -hmm. It was taught dare, dare, dare. 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 That's right. And, And it was taught, you know, you know by. I quite frankly wonder now what will happen. I think the decision was made to take the officers out of the high schools, and as I understood it, this is here in Columbus, that in many, many, many cases, it was a good thing having them there. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of the interaction with them, and I'm not questioning uh, Dr. Dixon's you know decision. Um, protesters call for their you know removal. Again, I'm not sure, you know, kind of the, the, you know, the the why. One of the things, um, going back to um, the Safety Advisory Commission, and and we made a recommendation around this, in terms of officers being trained, their training for interactions with juveniles is essentially the same as it is for adults. And juveniles are not, you know, adults. And quite frankly, this this has changed, and not just with the police. Um, How should I phrase this? Let's go back to, like, living in our communities. If you were caught doing something wrong, then anyone, you know, pretty much, uh, a neighbor. auntie, mm -hmm, mm whoever. If you say anything, for example, to a a parent in a grocery Mm -hmm. store that you see being inappropriate with their child, Um, the reaction is not going to be the same. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, with so many of our children, there's not, uh, I don't see respect of the police, there's not the respect of themselves and uh, and of their neighbors. And so again, it's with the police, I'm making no excuses, but I will say, and I don't know if you've had anyone on your program, what are we going to do? And I mean the collective we about the violence amongst our children. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll call the young lady who was killed, she was just a baby, and she was, but babies are out there killing babies Mm -hmm. every single day. And as a community, and I don't think you can say, it can't be just the schools, it can't just be the churches, it can't just be government. It's just Uh, generational. We have to collectively figure out a way Mm because it's not getting better. Mm-hmm. This year is worse than it was, mm-hmm. you know, I agree. You know, last year. I agree. Um, so again though, with with the police, um I mean, I I just they're not living on in our neighborhoods. It's, it's very much, you know, confrontational uh, how they speak to a juvenile. Um there there's certainly some things around training with them where we have made recommendations and and although we're we're right now paying the most attention to the recommendations of around the Civilian Review Board and but it's now the Inspector General but there are 80 recommendations in here Uh, even uh, when uh, the doctor was speaking about the history of policing uh, Dr. Chanel Jones actually presented that to the um, members of the Safety Advisory Commission and one of our recommendations I think is number 27 is to in fact to expand because that, that's a part of what they get, the police in terms of training. It's kind of the history of policing, but believe me, it does not currently include uh, the origins of it and slavery. Uh, and so that's one of the, mm-hmm. the recommendations.
0: Our time is wrapping up here today with our two experts, Dr. W. Marvin Delaney, civil rights historian, who's spoken and written extensively on black police in America and Janet Jackson, head of the new Columbus Police Advisory Civilian Review Board, with also an extensive background as a Franklin County Municipal Court Judge and Columbus City Attorney. So in our remaining time, we've talked about the past, of policing in the African American community, starting with the slave trade, where the role was to keep us in line. We've talked about the present, the Civilian Review Board, and perhaps some progress made, as we've seen in the George Floyd murder trial. The fact that we can even say that it was a murder trial, perhaps, is some progress. But then we've had the events here in Columbus. So let's talk about the possible future. A few quick questions for our experts. First, there is a George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. the federal level.
3: What's that about? Well, I'll jump right in and talk about that. In fact, um, three of the recommendations in the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act uh, mirrored, uh some of my recommendations that I sent you three um, a year or so ago. It, it, one, the, the bill wants to end qualified or proposes to end qualified immunity for police officers that is make them accountable for their actions. Uh, it wants to uh, remove those police brutality and police violence cases from again local prosecutors. It also wants to create a federal database uh, for uh, problem officers and also for police violence again so that the officers can't go from one jurisdiction to another carrying out the same thing. But it's an omnibus bill and that is an attempt to reform the police in this country and end police brutality and violence the, and again address uh, the shooting It has been passed by the house but we're not sure and we we all need to know that uh it's going to have some problems in the senate
2: there was actually an article in yesterday's paper about it um there's more hope that it will pass in the senate um senator tim scott a republican out of south carolina uh has weighed in on this and is helping to shape you know the uh legislation um so I'm, I'm i'm more hopeful uh the on conservative talk shows uh already and i typically don't listen to them but they are of course blasting this uh and they are talking about the fact that you, under this uh, new law you could actually sue police officers and so what's going to happen is that they're all just going to quit and i don't Mm. think that's true but i'm more hopeful that it's it's going to be passed Mm.
0: and what does it mean to defund the police and is that a good idea
3: i don't honestly Um.
2: know what it means so maybe the good doctor
3: can (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I've looked at several cases across the country obviously they were attempting to do that in Minneapolis I've looked at I believe it's Oakland and several other jurisdictions all they're talking about is moving some of the funding from the police department into other areas to address the real problems in the african-american community so for example uh, the police are get the largest amount of money in almost every urban jurisdiction in terms of city budgets. So what the reformers want to do, including Black Lives Matter, they want to take some of that money and move that to uh, addressing drug, drug problems in the community, uh, addressing housing, and uh, addressing health care and uh, child care so that, indeed, you look at some of the, some of the root causes of crime uh, and also removing the police from having to deal with social problems. The police are not equipped with, to address, with social, wealth, to address the social welfare problems. The way they address everything is by arresting people. So, so basically, take some of the money from the police that's punitive, basically, and, and move it to social welfare agencies to deal with drugs, homelessness, um, or also psychological problems that people have. Uh, again, a lot of the people that the police shoot are people who have mis- mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. And the police, instead of referring to the agencies, will shoot them sometimes because they fear them as being dangerous persons. So defunding the police don't mean does not mean abolishing the police altogether, even though that is a position that some people take. Yeah. It, means, it means taking the, some of the funds that the police use and abuse in some cases and putting it in other agencies.
2: So my memory has been refreshed, and I think even with uh, the most recent city budget, uh, and I'll stick with the, the topic of, of mental health issues, that there would be um, absolutely qualified professionals who would be on the scene with the police. Uh, and we actually have um, a unit now. We don't have enough individuals uh, and they're not available you know, 24-7, but that's, that's a specific, um, to have mental health professionals mm-hmm. who are on the scene. Um, because again, our officers are not trained mm-hmm. uh, really to deal with them.
0: So perhaps hypothetically, yeah. that could be utilized in a situation where there's a 16-year-old who for whatever reason feels so traumatized that she perhaps feels like she has to fight for her life and instead loses her
3: life yes someone comes out and talks her down rather than coming out and shooting her immediately after getting out of his car
0: de-escalating a situation Mm -hmm. and it is all tied Mm -hmm. into systemic reform not only of the police department but as we've said here on the show there are systems in place that we need to address there's there's crime that's happening there are children being left on their own and excuse me not only Uh that we've come out of a
1: pretty rough 24 months with the pandemic and economic decline and our neighborhoods have not recovered so it's complicated it's very complicated and it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all resolution you're correct what Mm -hmm. can our
0: listeners do what can our audience do does it relate specifically to this issue of law enforcement and the community?
3: I want to refer your listeners to an article I wrote about seven, six years, seven years ago. It's in the crime report, and they can access it. It's in the May nineteenth, two uh, 2015 crime report. Again, it's, it's about the history of the police. One of the things I recommend at the end, I, I, I sort of push aside all this stuff about Training and body cameras, uh, and, and all of that, as, as actually having a really really important impact. I recommend education. So I think your listeners should indeed. Um, that some of the money is moved from the police it can be put in education, and if you address the overall white supremacy education that everybody in this country receives. Um, uh, now that sounds like a broad uh, idea, but it can be done. Again, using funding starting in the, at the elementary and the, in early childhood education, training and teaching young people about each other and how to respect people regardless of their race, religion or whatever.
0: Thank you so much to noted black historian, Dr. W. Marvin Delaney, retired professor, University of Texas of Arlington, but Ohio native Central State and the Ohio State University graduate. Thank you so much to retired Franklin County Municipal Judge, retired City Attorney of Columbus, Janet Jackson, retired President and CEO of United Way of Central Ohio, currently head of the new Columbus Safety Review Board, Police Safety Review Board. Board. You two do not know anything about retirement. We're so glad you don't because we need you just as we need all of the listeners in our audience to first become more educated about the issues and look through your own window. Thank you for joining us every Saturday from 12 noon to 1 p.m. on 1580thepraise.com along with my co host, Dr. Iris Cooper. I'm Joanna Williamson, and we thank you for joining us for this week's installment. Of the wind have a good week thank All
3: you for right. having us yes thank you
1: us <sighs> the